Ecclesiastes 5. Uh, For the past uh, couple of weeks, as I mentioned, we've been considering what we've called the the vanity or the meaninglessness of mechanical worship. Uh, The danger, we might say, of allowing our our worship to become nothing more than uh, an empty formalism, uh, a routine that is is detrimental to our spiritual lives. Uh, We talked about how Solomon has has visited, uh, in a sense, visited the temple uh, and, and, and observed what's going on there. He's watched, watched as worshipers uh, come and go from the temple. He's observing them, uh, praising God and praying and, and uh, interacting with one another, bringing sacrifices, uh, making vows. And, and he notes that not everyone that comes to worship at the temple is uh, doing that out of sincerity, that, that a lot of people come with a, a lack of sincerity in, in their worship. Uh, a lot of people come to, to worship, really turning worship and praise uh, inside out, uh, approaching God with a, 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 a lackadaisical attitude, uh, not dealing with forms of neglect, spiritual neglect in their lives, or not dealing with forms of hypocrisy, sort of going through the motions, going through the routines, and being more concerned with, we might say, the approval of men rather than the, the approval of God. And so Solomon just very straightforwardly refers to them as, as foolish. They, these, are, these are foolish uh, worshipers. And so what Solomon provides for us really in these first, we've been looking at the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes 5. What he really gives to us in these seven verses are, we might say, four, ex, four exhortations. Uh, four exhortations that can help us to be wise worshipers. Uh, four exhortations that can help us to steer clear of this, the, the meaninglessness of mechanical uh, and empty and vain worship. Uh, the first one of those is to guard your steps. Uh, he says this in, in verse 1, guard your steps as or guard your steps when uh, you go to the house of God. Solomon says that we're to be keeping or we're to be watching our feet uh, when we go to worship so that we don't stray uh, in our worship, that we don't stumble, uh, that we don't get sidetracked from the things that we, uh, we need to be doing uh, so that we don't forget or, or that we don't misunderstand or that we don't twist uh, the very purpose of worship and the purpose in our coming together as, as the people of God. So he tells us to, to watch our feet, to guard our steps, that we not be reckless in what we're doing, uh, and that we don't just show up assuming that what we're doing and what we're thinking and what we're saying is acceptable to God. Because that's the problem is that our guard, we stop paying attention to our ways, to our thoughts, to our motives. We still show up. We still go through the exercise. We still go through the, the routine. But because we're not examining our hearts and being careful about what we're doing, we're sort of assuming that what we're doing is acceptable. So we just show up, we do the same things week after week in our, in our context. We come to church and we assume that, you know, all is well between us and God and that God is pleased. Uh, it's interesting, over in, uh, at the very end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 1, in verse 6, says this, uh, this is the Lord, he says, "...a son honors his father and a servant his master." Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, 
how have we despised your name? This is what the Lord says. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? In other words, it's as if he's saying, listen, if it's, if it's such a good sacrifice, why don't you go offer it to some civil authority? Because you know that you couldn't offer that to someone else and them consider it to be something that's pleasing or acceptable. Then he asks, would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. So he's saying, I just wish there was someone among you who would just shut the doors. (laughs) You might as well. You might as well just shut the doors until you get things squared away. Until, until you get this resolved, just close the doors. Don't go in there. Don't light useless fires. Uh, don't go in there with your old battered up sacrifices. Don't go in there with, with the remnants of your life and offer them to God as if that was the totality of all that you have to offer. Or we might just say, don't play fast and loose. Don't, don't, don't be trivial in these things. So we need to guard our steps. Which demands, as we, we noted last time, a certain perspective in our approach to this, this activity, this occasion, uh, a perspective that recognizes that what we are doing here is a priority. Uh, we need to come together. We need to worship God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need to, to praise God. We need to hear the word of God. We need to celebrate our, our union with Christ and our union together as believers. We need to, to pray and to give and to serve together in gospel ministry we just said listen the local church uh, the local church is not optional it it is a part of God's design and and we need to be committed to it so it it demands a certain perspective it also demands a certain preparation for our involvement that is to say that we should never approach worship without intentional preparation Um, without taking the time to sort of get set up correctly or to get properly aligned Um, but sometimes you know, I said it's very common for us to be in such a rush because of our maybe our familiarity with, with what we're doing uh, that we don't pay attention. You know, we just stumble in the door having not prayed, no sense of expectancy on our part with little thought of what we are here for and who it is that we worship. Uh, assuming that we're ready, but falling miserably short of aligning our hearts with the purposes of God. So guard our steps, that's the first exhortation. The second one is to watch your mouth. You'll notice he continues, guard your steps as you go to the house of God, verse 1, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what what they are doing is evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. So Solomon says that at a very basic level, one of the reasons that we, are, we as worshipers of God are to come together this morning is to hear God's word spoken. And one of the ways that we can avoid folly is to listen to that word and uh, to have, as we lish, listen, an intention to obey 
uh, and to, to follow what we, what we hear from Scripture. And yet, again, our inclination sometimes isn't to listen. Uh, it's to talk, and it's to talk, in some cases, excessively. Um, we said, to, to, in some cases, to use the, the quantity, uh, words in quantity, to cover up the quality of our desires, uh, to offer up a lot of chatter, to pour out a lot of uh, empty words, a flood of empty words. But Solomon says here that we're to watch, watch our mouths, that we're to come to worship, ready to listen. That we're to be here, eager to listen, ready to listen, ready to be taught something important, uh, rather than being rash or reckless. In fact, uh, verse 2 literally would say, Do not let your heart hurry. Do not let your heart hurry to cause a word to go out before God. <laughs> so it is about words. It is about letting things come out, but it's also about we know where those words come from, right? I mean, they come out of the overflow of the heart. So it's, it's, it's attending to our hearts, but also being careful about, you know, what's coming out of our mouths and, and being very, uh, very cautious about that, being careful regarding rash promises, being careful about excessive talk and meaningless repetition, being careful about praying things and saying things for show. Uh, because, he says... God is infinitely greater than man. He is holy, he is immortal, he's sovereign, transcendent, self-sufficient. Nevertheless, he sees us, he sees your struggles, he knows your heart, and he's very interested in what's going on right here, right now, in what we're doing. So he says, don't allow your prayers to be reduced to verbal doodling. Don't allow your conversations to turn into religious talk. And don't assume that what you think and feel are synonymous with what God thinks uh, and feels and, and that you have to verbalize it. You don't have to verbalize it. <laughs> so be, be careful with, with what you say. Be patient. Slow your tongue. Quiet your heart. And be humble. So guard your steps. Watch your mouth. We stopped there. Uh, we're going to pick up and finish out these verses this morning down through verse 7. Two more exhortations. The third exhortation is keep your vows. Keep your vows. Notice what he says, picking up there in verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands. So this is about the connection between promise and practice. Uh, this is about the connection between what we say and what we do, right? So we're talking about watching our steps, examining our hearts, preparing our hearts, Guarding our tongues, being careful that when we come here, it's not so much about what we say, it's about what we're learning and what we're hearing. We're to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. And then now he brings up this issue of that when you make promises, there, ne- there needs to be a follow-through. And so, I mean, in Luke six forty six, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not, right, what I say. 
So as we consider this, this issue of vows, now, to my knowledge, I can't think of a place in the Bible where we find a mandate to make vows, it's sort of in, in a command form. Nevertheless, there is this assumption uh, that we would do this at times. And we do find in the Bible incidences where vows were being made to the Lord. Uh, particularly in the Old Testament, we find vows that mainly involved uh, dedic- uh, a, um, a dedicated, dedicating or giving things to the Lord, uh, people vowing uh, to give themselves to God. Uh, we have examples of people dedicating their children to the Lord, of uh, people giving animals uh, or sacrifices to the Lord. We also discover situations in the Old Testament and even into the New Testament uh, where people made rash vows, uh, which most often involved declaring something that must be treated as holy uh, when they probably shouldn't have been considered as such, either because it wasn't theirs uh, to sort of make that assessment or that declaration, or it could have even been something unclean or maybe even outright sinful. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 25 says, It is a trap for a man to say rashly it is holy, and after the vows to make inquiry. <laughs> so just saying there is this, there are these examples in the Old Testament of, of people jumping the gun, <laughs> making promises, making assessments and evaluations without really gathering adequate uh, information. Uh, so we're going to come back to this, but before I, I uh, comment really on, on what Solomon has to say in, in these verses, I want to I ask you to go over to Matthew chapter 5, uh, which is a part of the, the Sermon on the Mount, because in, in that particular text, in Matthew 5, uh, Jesus addresses this issue of, of making vows and, and being truthful. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, if you'll look down, uh, down, into, uh, verse, down to verse 33. Matthew five thirty three. Jesus says, Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. What Jesus is doing here is he's giving us, he's sort of stating the traditional teaching. Um, And and the teaching that Jesus quotes here is really a a composite of ideas uh, based on uh, two or three different references in the Old Testament. One out of Leviticus 19, we've got uh, Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. Jesus is saying... You've, you've heard that the ancients were told uh, not, not to, and the idea is perjure yourselves. You're, the ancients were told not to perjure yourselves or to swear falsely, but to fulfill your vows, which is the term for vows. Actually, two different terms in this, this verse for vows, but the one that he uses there when he says fulfill your vows is a term that speaks to something that is enclosed. Or, or something that is fenced in or, or is bound together. That is to say that, that the truth of an oath is enclosed or is bound, and it is strengthened by that which is invoked on its behalf. So this is what would happen. What, what would happen is that the name of something or someone greater than the person making the oath would be invoked to give credibility to what was said. And any oath calling on God, so if you're going to call on God in this oath, what you're basically doing is you're inviting God to to, uh, witness the truthfulness of what is said 
in that vow or in that, that commitment. Or, on the flip side, if it's a lie and you're going to call God as your witness, then what you're basically asking God to do is to avenge. Uh, you're saying that if this, if this turns out to be a lie, then you're asking God to, to repay, uh, to, to, to bring recompense. Now, God provided for making oaths, we know this, by, by his name. We see this in uh, Leviticus 19.12 uh, and in many Old Testament passages. Uh, we see believers in the Old Testament following this practice of making oaths in the name of the Lord or making oaths in the name of God. Uh, Abraham confirmed his promises to the king of Sodom in, Sodom in Gen- Genesis 14 uh, and to Abimelech in Genesis 21 with oaths in the name of God. Uh, he also made his servant Eliezer, uh, and this is a quote out of Genesis 24, swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that he would not take a wife uh, for Isaac from among the, the pagan Canaanites uh, around them, but from among the relatives in, in Abraham's homeland of Mesopotamia. Uh, Jacob and Laban, his father-in-law, called on God as their witness when they made a covenant with each other at Mizpah. This is Genesis 31, uh, verses 44 and following. Uh, David and Jonathan did likewise when they covenanted together in 1 Samuel 20. Uh, Psalm 132, verse 2, says that David himself quote, swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. All of these men uh, and, and, and many others made oaths and made covenants calling on God as witness to their truthfulness and their sincerity. Uh, in fact, even God himself made oaths uh, on, on different occasions. Genesis chapter 22, verse 16, this is uh, God's uh, sort of Uh, oath to Abraham after Abraham had displayed his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. He says there in verse 16, and he said, the Lord speaking, and by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of of their enemies. Uh, in, In the book of Hebrews, Uh, The writer of Hebrews explains, sort of looking back on this event in Abraham's life, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to, their, to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Now, obviously, the Lord's promise made with an oath, uh, those promises were no more truthful or binding than anything else that he promised. So the question is, why did he do it? Why did God do that? Well, it's, it's not that God makes an oath because his word would otherwise be questionable or unreliable, but because God wants to impress upon men a special importance or urgency related to 
the promise. Even Jesus at times, think about this, at times Jesus would use the phrase, truly, I say to you. <laughs> As if what, what Jesus said prior to that wasn't all that true. So he had to say, now, now what I'm about to tell you, this is really true. So Jesus, in fact, he says this in Matthew 5. You look at verse 18, you look at verse 26, Jesus makes this statement, truly I say to you. At other times, Jesus would more emphatically say this, for instance, in John 1, 51, truly, truly, I say to you. So again, the question is, why would Jesus do that? Uh, it's not because the words that followed these introductions were more truthful than anything else that Jesus said, but Jesus wanted to call attention to a teaching of special importance. In fact, Jesus himself swore an oath before Caiaphas in Matthew 26, verses 20, uh, 63 and 64. Uh, in addition, we have the Apostle Paul who took a vow, in, a vow in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, and gave a type of an oath in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. So, so what's my point in bringing up all these examples? My point is God provided for proper oath giving in his name. God provided for that. God provided for proper oath giving in his name. Uh, not in the case of, of Jesus, but in the case of men who are so prone to deceit, uh, deceitfulness and, and prone to lying. It's as if God made this accommodation to our sinful nature. That is to say that God knows that the inclination of men to lie causes them to distrust one another and in serious situations an oath is permissible to give greater motivation to tell the truth and or to keep a pledge. So, um, clearly an oath, no matter how strong we know this, no matter how strong the words used, is only as reliable as the one who makes it. Um, and again, sometimes oaths are made made sincerely at other other times they are made very foolishly without considering their their seriousness and and the possible consequences uh, we have again those examples of rash vows made by Joshua by Jephthah in Judges 11 Saul in 1 Samuel 14 uh, even Herod in Matthew 14 but by Old Testament law oaths were only to be made in God's name they were permissible and they were only to be made in God's name Explicitly, Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Isaiah 65.16, Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. Even, even the Gentiles uh, were to swear only by God's name. We, we see this even in Jeremiah, speaking of Israel's uh, wicked neighbors in chapter 12, verse 16. Then if they will really learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, they will be built up in the midst of my people. So oaths were only to be, to be made in God's name and keeping them was from the beginning a very serious thing. To break an oath was sinful. Uh, to break an oath, as we said, would, it, would have invited God's wrath. Now, what was wrong, so really in this, this, Jesus is addressing this, he's bringing this up in the Sermon on the Mount. 
what was wrong with the traditional teaching that Jesus mentions in Matthew 5.33. So Jesus is bringing this up. The question is, well, if he's bringing up the traditional teaching, because he's saying you've heard that this is said, what is it that Jesus is is addressing? What's, What's his problem with this traditional teaching that was going around? And there's two things. Uh, the first thing was that there was a missing piece. <laughs> we might say a missing ingredient. Uh, secondly, there was a misplaced emphasis. So what was the missing ingredient? Well, the missing ingredient in the traditional teaching that Jesus is addressing in Matthew 5, the, the missing ingredient was a proper circumstance for making an oath, a proper circumstance. In other words, in Jesus' day, virtually any kind of oath used for almost any kind of purpose was acceptable, just as long as it wasn't false and and the person would fulfill it. So there was this this lack of a proper circumstance, and the missing ingredient of a serious or a proper circumstance ultimately in Jesus' day had led to the point where there were essentially frivolous, meaningless oaths being being made that completely, in a way, spoiled the legitimate purpose of oaths. So people would declare and promise anything with an oath. Uh, indiscriminate and insincere vows uh, became very commonplace, so, so commonplace that no one really took them seriously. And instead of being a mark of integrity... They became a mark of deceit. In other words, when people would do this, it almost, rather than having that, the weight to it that it should have had, it's almost as if when people would do this, it became, it became laughable. It's almost like if you heard someone that did this a lot, you would actually assume that they were being deceitful, that they were the kind of person that would do this to just sort of cover up their, their insincerity and their deception. So rather than prompting confidence, rather than, than doing what an oath should do, which is if someone does this, it should cause you to go, okay, they're serious about this. It actually had the opposite effect. It actually created skepticism and, and doubt on the part of the people that, that heard these things. So there was a missing ingredient, and there was a misplaced emphasis. And the misplaced emphasis was in limiting the honest oaths to vows to the Lord to oaths made directly to him or in his name, so that the keeping of those oaths was viewed as mandatory, whereas the keeping of others was viewed as optional. So in other words, they they took this concept of that you're to make these vows and oaths to the Lord, and they basically said, okay, well, if you make them to the Lord, then you have to keep them. But if you make them to something else, then it's not as serious. And so this is what people would do. They would swear by heaven. They wouldn't swear by the Lord's name. Uh, they wouldn't bring the Lord into, into that discussion. They would swear by heaven. They would swear by earth. They would swear by the temple, by the hairs on their heads. Uh, anything that they thought would impress those that, that they wanted to take advantage of, all the while intending to break their promises, but considering it acceptable because they did not do it in the name of the Lord. That is to say, swearing falsely by his name was wrong, but swearing falsely by another name was acceptable. And violating an oath made directly to the Lord was wrong, but reneging on, on an oath to others was, was okay. So in the end, through that rabbinical tradition, God's standard of absolute truthfulness was both contradicted and lowered. Lowered to a level 
that accommodated the sinful, selfish purposes of the people. So that's the issue that Jesus is addressing. He's saying that there's two problems. One is that you're just doing this all the time. And so it's you've watered down the seriousness of it by the fact that you do it so often. Secondly, you've said, okay, the Old Testament keeps emphasizing that we're to make oaths but only in God's name, that we're only to, in, to call him as a witness. But as long as we don't do that, we can make all kinds of oaths and commitments and vows and promises, but they're not as serious. And so we don't have to, to be as diligent to, to uh, follow through and keep our word. So how does Jesus deal with the perversion of that Old Testament standard? Well, in Matthew 5, you'll notice there verse 34, But I say to you, make an oath, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. <laughs> I hate to break your heart, folks. Can't do that. So, in contrast, this is what Jesus does. In contrast to those alterations to the will of God, Jesus simply reasserts the Old Testament standard. So, he just simply upholds what was true in the Old Testament. But that, but that very thing that had been misconstrued and had been twisted by tradition. And so, Jesus says, make no oath at all. In other words... Oaths are to be used only on important occasions and are to be given only in the name of the Lord. So Jesus was not excluding all oaths. He, was, he wasn't condemning, we might say, oath-making. What Jesus was condemning was the flippant oath, the profane oath, the, the oath that was uh, uncalled for and in some cases was hypocritical the oath that was used in order to make an impression or to make daily conversation more interesting. And so, again, you can see this sort of play out, right? I mean, you can see this play out, in, and you think about these people going to the temple, right? And so you think about everything that Solomon is saying back here in Ecclesiastes 5 about this, the emptiness, the vanity of, of mechanical, uh, routine worship, not guarding your heart, not guarding your tongue, you show up at the temple and you're having these conversations and you just start promising, right? You just start saying things and I mean you're you're calling things, uh, you know, making these these oaths and and you're and you're going to the priest and maybe even before the priest you're making commitments, right? That you're going to do certain things or that you're going to bring certain sacrifices. But again, the problem is it's it's all for show. I, I mean, you're not really taking these things all that seriously. So. Jesus wasn't forbidding the making of an oath under any circumstance. In fact, he was promoting the Old Testament law that taught proper oath-making by both precept and example. And he was commending simple truth-telling. Simple truth-telling in thought, word, and in deed. So if we swear, we are to swear by no other name but God's, not by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or even our own head, thinking that this will make our oath less binding. Because God, he says, is a, he's the creator and Lord of everything. He is the God of truth in everything. And to carelessly and dishonestly call any part of creation as witness to a false oath 
is to dishonor God himself regardless of whether we invoke his name. So every false oath dishonors God's name. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5.37, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is, is of evil. God's absolute unchanging standard is truth and sincerity in everything. So uh, not only should oaths be totally truthful and dependable, but even the most routine conversations should be truthful. Our words, our message, and our speech should be as good as our bond and as good as our oath or vow. Now, uh, back to Ecclesiastes. I just go there because I, I, people that go to the Matthew 5 passage, they, they, what they get out of that is that Jesus is doing away with this principle. He's just saying, don't ever make these commitments. Don't ever, you know, uh, call God as your witness. Uh, don't ever make these covenants or these promises or these, these commitments. That that's, that's a bad thing when that's not really what I think Jesus is is addressing. I don't think Jesus is saying, don't ever make a vow. I think he's saying he's addressing something culturally that was going on that we isn't, maybe it's not that obvious to us when we read that passage, what's really going on. But it's this issue of, of flippancy. It's this issue of, 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 of thinking of things sort of categorically. It's that sort of sacred secular thing right we do these things over here and they're and they're and they're sacred but we do these other things in our life and they're just commonplace and and routine and and secular (laughs) you say no we've got to bridge the credibility gap here everything that you do is serious (laughs) so in the same way that you do your thing out here in the workplace and then you're making your way in the old testament context to the temple and Yes, there's preparation that's involved, and there are some unique things you need to be thinking about, the purpose for which you are going to the temple. But at the same time, it's not as if like that should be the first time that you think about God that day or that week. I mean, there shouldn't be this major shift from the way that we're living out there, right, and what we do when we come together in corporate worship. So... Jesus is addressing, I think, some of, these, some of those types of issues. And so as we get back to Ecclesiastes 5, sort of say, okay, what, what, is, what is Solomon getting at in these verses? And, and I think that simply puts what Solomon is saying is that whenever you make a vow to God, there needs to be a reality. There needs to be a follow-through. And he says basically two things. That when you make a vow, that you need to make sure that you don't delay in fulfilling it. And secondly, you need to make sure that you don't deny making it. <laughs> so you don't delay in fulfilling the, the vow, and you need to make sure and be very careful that you don't deny making it. So, again, it's, it fits within everything you said so far. Be careful. Don't, don't make a vow to bribe the Lord. Uh, don't make insincere and deceptive promises to God. We, we see an example of that in the New Testament, right, with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, right? And it's sort of toying with God in the hopes of gaining a greater esteem and in the estimation of others in the church. It's a serious thing. 
I mean, you, you know what happens in that situation, right? The Lord, the Lord takes their, their very lives. So we, we, don't make, we don't make insincere promises. We don't make deceptive promises to God. Uh, we don't need to make vows to impress others. Uh, we don't need to vow something that our fleshly desire will cause us to break. It's like we need to be careful about the commitments that we make. We need to be careful about making a vow. We need to resist making vows, I would say, in times of trial, <laughs> right? Because we see these, we actually have examples of this in the Old Testament where under pressure and in the midst of a trial, there's, there's lack of clarity and there's confusion and, and, and we do things sometimes in a rash way. So we need to be careful about what we do in times of trial. But Solomon says, if you, may, if you do make a vow, fulfill it on time, don't make excuses because what you do reveals your view of God. It, it keeps coming back to this issue of that, that whatever you're doing in these, in these areas, it reveals what you believe about God and who he is. How you enter the temple and how you approach worship and what you say and if you're listening and paying attention or if you're just going through the motions says a lot about what you believe about God. And this is just another example of something that reveals your view of God. And again, these promises to God have serious implications because notice verse 6, do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So this is the scene. Someone makes a vow to God in the temple but he doesn't fulfill his vow on time. And so the messenger of God, or we might say that it could be the priest, it could be a messenger of the priest, an agent of the priest, or perhaps even a prophet, uh, comes, makes the effort to remind the individual about their promise and their vow and to receive payment, especially if sacrifices were promised. But when they come, Solomon says this, don't tell them that it was a mistake. <laughs> Don't act as if what you did was some sort of in, inadvertent error. Like, oh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> you know, I really didn't mean that. You know, don't, don't act like that it, it was, wasn't done with intentionality. It was just some, some mistake on your part. Because when God judges or disciplines such foolishness, the results can be catastrophic. In fact, it says here that God might destroy the work of your hands. And that's not, a, that's not a temper tantrum. That's not, that's not God being a bully. Um, God gets angry at what we hope he would get angry at. God is a God of truth. Uh, he doesn't intend to approve or favor those who use his name to do evil to others. He doesn't intend to approve those who make promises with no intention of fulfilling them or who exalt their own words and their own plans or those who use religion to selfishly advance themselves and, and to distort the character and the work of God. He opposes people like that. God does what we long for. He judges the religious hypocrite. And remember, this isn't just about those other people, right? This is a warning. This is a warning to us that we cannot dupe God by our religiosity. God is not naive regarding what people do in his name. And foolish churchgoers hastily make promises uh, and pledges. And they make excuses for not keeping their promises. 
and they always seem to have a religious reason for why they can't do what they had pledged to do. Their word is not their bond. And Solomon says here, don't make a fool of yourself. <laughs> don't make a fool of yourself. Fulfill your vow. Don't let your mouth lead you to sin. Don't say that you're going to do something and then back out when you should be following through. God's blessing doesn't rest upon the life that flippantly disposes of our obligations. So we need God's blessing and we need to be wise worshipers. Wise worshipers are those who guard their steps. Wise worshipers are those who watch their mouths and guard their tongues. Wise worshipers are those who keep their vows. And then there at the, in verse 7, wise worshipers are those who stand in awe. For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. So we, we've got the many dreams, the many words. These are, these are empty things, things with no purpose, no value, no meaning, things that lead to empty conversation, things that lead to empty prayers and, and empty vows. But he says in contrast to that flippancy and in contrast to not guarding your steps and not being careful, rather fear God. Charles Bridges said this, his definition of the fear of God, fear of God he says, it is the grand fundamental of godliness. It's, it's the fundamental. I mean, it's, it's where godliness begins. Uh, what is it? What is the fear of God? Well, we've already talked a little bit about this. It's already come up in, in, this, in this book, and we spent some time um, a few months ago discussing that. Uh, it's trusting God completely. It's experiencing God's forgiveness, which means that only true believers can rightly fear God. Uh, it's delighting in God's word, Psalm 112, verse 1. It's keeping and obeying God's word, Psalm 119, 63. It's sincerely and consistently hating evil, Proverbs 8, 13. It's steadfastly hoping in God's loyal love and faithfulness, Psalm 147, verse 11. It's to be concerned. This is my definition. It's to be concerned about what offends God and to be concerned about what pleases Him. And we said this, a couple, of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago regarding, regarding our worship, that the, the real problem in our worship is that our view of God has grown too small and our view of ourselves, ourselves have, have grown too large. And so we've, we've, we've taken this concept, this idea of consumerism, and we've brought it sort of into the church. And when you bring consumerism, that, that idea, into the church, you're virtually done. I mean, once you've done that. Uh, John Hendricks said this, and this is a, a write-up entitled Self-Worship. He said, many times I wonder which, which God is being worshipped in our churches and where this God developed his characteristics. Many of we modern evangelicals seem to think that the purpose of a church service is to entertain, exhilarate, and energize. Some of us go to, the, go to church not so much to worship God, to stand in awe of his grace to us in Christ, to stir up our affections for him, but rather to consume sit back, fancy the musical experience, and apply the self-help advice we glean during the sermon. The pastor is expected to be clean-cut, not offensive and smooth. The musicians to be talented and contemporary. The congregation to be good-looking, middle-class, look and act like you. A great majority of us appear to actually select our churches, not by the sound and dynamic preaching of the scriptures, but by these outward considerations alone. Some newspapers have even begun to go around and rate churches on these externals as one would a local restaurant. There you have it, a worship of consumerism. 
In other words, this new mentality we have embraced is none other than the worship of self. Then we self-righteously attack those who differ from us, who do not use the seeker-sensitive model and lose sight of the fact that the worst enemy is, more often than not, the person we see in the mirror. A a church that is self-congratulatory has become a questionable fellowship because the function of the service has gone from the scriptural command to worship God to the idolatrous worship of self. God should be central to worship, not you. That is, He should be the central focus in our song, proclamation of the word, and in the administering of the sacraments. Self-focused, self-absorbed, psychological sessions whose main purpose is to generate good feelings about ourselves is idolatry, a breach of the first and second commandments. This tragic lapse into consumerism is devouring the church and making mincemeat of our local assemblies. Instead of finding the service meaningful and God-glorifying, centering in the Trinity and especially the person and work of Christ, many spend their time of asking themselves what they got out of it. Rather, we need to be asking ourselves, was God glorified in our time of corporate worship today? So, fear God. Fear God. Again, we're not talking about terror. We're talking about being filled with a breathtaking awe at the character of God that draws us in. It's interesting. Psalm 130 verse 4 says, But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. <laughs> All right? We would expect the psalmist to say, But there is forgiveness with you, therefore you don't have to be feared. But we fear him because of that love that will not let us go, right? And we know that we have a fear of God when we ask this question. Will our Heavenly Father approve? Will he approve? And you know what's encouraging? Our Father accepts whatever we do out of love for him, however inferior it is. Because God isn't looking for worshipers that are perfect. God is looking for worshipers that are humble and honest. And he treats our shabby contributions the way that we as earthly fathers treat our own children's imperfect contributions. Right? Reminded me of a little picture I found. Is Tiffany here today? Tiffany's not here? Found this a while back. I was going through some stuff. That was probably when she was, what, five years old? Yeah. That's her. <laughs> I scared her when she saw it. She goes, that's me. <laughs> I said, I know. Right? I mean, our kids give us these things, right? Listen, they're, they're not perfect, right? These things aren't perfect. In some cases, they're not even very good. And I'm not speaking either. I'm saying some of these things that our kids give to us are not even very good. But here's the thing. They were, they're offered to us in love by those who are objects of our affection. And they thrill us, and we receive them, right? We receive these offerings. So if we pull it all together, all that Solomon is saying in these seven verses, we could summarize it, summarize it this way. Don't, don't play games with God. Take him seriously. God is a realist. He never plays games with us. He sees things the way that they really are. He tells us the way that they are. So don't get caught up in meaningless mechanical worship. Don't be foolish. Be a wise worshiper. Guard your steps. Keep your mouth. Watch your mouth. Keep your vows. Stand in awe. And let me just close with this. This is just a paraphrase of these seven verses. It's by T.M. Moore. 
So it's, uh, you, it's hard to pick up on the poetry of it, the lines, if you can see it on the page, that, the, that they rhyme, but I'll, let me just read it. This is just sort of a loose poetic paraphrase to just help us to remember these spiritual lessons. This is what he says. How brazen and dishonest people are with their religion. They will go as far uh, with it as suits their needs. So they attend the services and sing the hymns, and when they have to go, when they have to, give a little money to the Lord. But do they live as one should do who's, who's made a vow to God? Don't kid yourself. Among their friends, their faith is on the shelf. Remember, God knows everything. He knows our hearts when, when we before Him bring our worship. And you can't fool Him. So take a good look at yourself before you make your next appearance before the Lord. And go to listen, not to speak. For He will know just what you need. Why any fool can spout a lovely prayer or sing a hymn about his faith. His words are mindless like a dream, although to people looking on they seem impressive, not to God. For words are cheap, just like the dreams you have while you're asleep. God wants your heart, my son, not just a show. Get right with him before you to him go. So, good reminders for us about the importance of of worship and, and some of the pitfalls and the dangers that we all face. So thank you for your time. We'll come back next week, pick up in verse 8, and I think we'll, Lord willing, be able to, uh, uh, at a much quicker pace, uh, get through this chapter and finish the chapter up before we take a Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving break. All right, folks, thanks for your time.